0: Let's pray. Almighty God, grant to your church, your Holy Spirit and the wisdom that comes down from above, that your word may not be bound, but have free course and be preached to the joy and edifying of Christ's holy people, that in steadfast faith we may serve you and then in confession of your name, abide unto the end through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. So um, kind of continuing along here in the history of Lutheranism and it's always important to learn from the past right uh, for one if we if we don't learn from the past history might repeats itself right and um we can recognize the errors that occurred in theology and in the church over over time and and then how they were taken care of right and how they were uh fixed if you will and so um We've been going through this history of the Reformation. Uh, well, we did the the kind of whole 10,000 foot view of Christian history, and now now going through specifically the history of the Reformation and kind of where did we come from, right? What's how does this form part of our identity today? And uh, we, if you're in, if you have the book, we're we're on page 220, kind of going through this timeline, and then we're going to talk more broadly about the world of the Reformation, which is. Um, It maybe it's not so applicable, but at least it's very interesting. So um, we'll see how far we get in that tonight as well. Okay, so I think we left off right around fifteen thirty-eight. We did. So um, thank you. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther's (laughs) small called articles were published, and um, yeah. So there uh, around this time, the the book doesn't talk about this, but around this time there was um some skirmishes some wars uh breaking out not only as the turks were invading the holy roman empire but also uh the there were what was called the peasants revolts um that started the 30 years war if you you remember way back world history right 30 years war Um, where basically the Radical reformers and the Roman Catholics uh, were really getting at it, like they did not like each other. Um, and you can understand, too, to some degree, right, The uh, when when the Reformation broke out and, and the Roman Catholics had been charging people to have their sins forgiven, right, and then they, people find out they've been scammed, right?
1: right?
0: Think about when people find out they've been scammed today, right? Right. <laughs> Um, there's this Facebook page, Hernando Happenings. Is anyone on yeah. that? Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it's kind of entertaining, right? <laughs> but, yeah, there's a whole, I just saw today, you know, some, some auto shop been scamming people. Everyone's up in arms, right? Well, anyway, it's kind of what happened <laughs> on a much larger scale. So, um, Luther was against the violence, right? He uh, wrote a lot about um, how the peasants' revolt needed to stop and how how he wanted to avoid war. Um, But nonetheless, uh, there were kind of military alliances that that had to form, uh, basically for the protection of of people. And the Lutherans formed a a kind of military alliance called the Small Caldic League. Um, And the Small Caldic League is what asked Luther to write this... um, Confession describing the difference between Roman Catholic and Lutheran beliefs. And that's that's why he publishes his small articles. Also, at the same time, I think I mentioned this last week, Luther thinks he's dying. He's got really bad kidney stones. This is 1538. He ultimately dies in, in 1546. But um, he, he thinks he's dying at this point. And so he writes this very clear and concise confession in the midst of war, in the midst of sickness, he writes this very clear and concise confession, the Small Call Articles, and um, those are still in our book of uh, Book of Concord or Lutheran Confessions today. So um, that's published in 1538, um, and at the so uh, I mean so many things are happening. We'll see this in the next chapter too. So many things are happening during this this time period in in world history, but um, at the same time, Pope Paul III – Decides to call this council um, on how to reform the Catholic Church. Okay, so the the Roman Catholics they realize they got problems, right? Um, people are leaving in mass and 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 all these things. They got they have problems, um, and that results in the Council of Trent, 1545 to 1563. Um, so it's a long long council. They meet basically this committee that meets, you know, over of bishops that meets over the course of almost 20 years. And this is the Council of Trent is very important um, because this is really where we can see what we would consider kind of modern Roman Catholic theology come, come into play. And how they're going to deal. So they, you know, they have Aquinas that's written all these kind of Aristotelian type of principles, and they kind of have what they've been doing um, for the past couple hundred years, but they really haven't formalized their system of belief at this point um, in, in into what they were doing in the late medieval. Empire, right? What they were doing in this, these late, late medieval times, and there were a lot of things, you know, like the, like the selling of indulgences, for instance, which really weren't systematized theologically for the Roman Catholics at this point. Well, uh, the Council of Trent meets to kind of like, okay, who are we? What do we believe? Type of thing as Roman Catholics, and uh, this is if you read the Count the documents, the Council of Trent, like. It, it's very much closer to modern Roman Catholicism than, say like the early church fathers, West, Western church fathers are. right? So um, th- this is kind of an important like, I don't know, apologetic point from a Lutheran perspective is Lutherans are able to point to the, to the church fathers like Augustine and say, look, this is we line up with Augustine, right? Um, we line up with, with what the theologians were saying in the year 300 roman catholics say well augustine was roman catholic well okay yes in a sense he was kind of part of the western church from out of rome like that was based in rome but theologically that's not so true right because your modern roman catholic believes a lot of things that that augustine does not believe and really their source of theology is much more the council of trent right and um so one of the later lutheran theologians so there's this guy – this is kind of an aside, but it's I think it's important um, – named Martin Chemnitz. And this is a Lutheran that comes the generation after Luther. And Martin Chemnitz, they, they say uh, – there, there's this pretty popular book called The Two Martins. Um, so you can look that up if you're interested. I think that's what it's called that makes the argument pretty persuasively that a lot of what Luther did would not have stuck if it wasn't for what Chemnitz followed it up with. And uh, Chemnitz is partly responsible for some of the things in the formula of Concord, which is the last book in the book of Concord before it's published in 1580. And also he is um, responsible, the reason I bring him up now, for writing um an examination on the council of trent and it's in my office if you're interested you can borrow it but the examination on the council of trent is um, this in some ways kind of final nail in the coffin if you will for how lutherans differ between lutheran theology and roman catholics he goes point by point on what all the roman catholics say this is what we believe this is what we believe this is what we believe and and, and shows from the bible and from the church fathers why uh, they either they're, they're wrong or why we agree with them on a certain, on you know this or that point or whatever um, so it's a much fuller version. Like we talked about the Augsburg Confession and the Confutation and the Apology. That this is a much kind of fuller version of that, if you will. Um, so kind of an interesting history there. But this happens kind of a little bit later on. right? This is like 15, uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s especially. Um, and so or really 60s and 70s with the examination and all that. Uh, anyway, very interesting kind of history there on 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 where what you could say modern roman catholic theology comes from and and roman catholics still hold to this the the other thing that protestants will often point out is like this is really the point the council of trent is really the point where roman catholics said they they had their chance to repent right they had their chance to say you know what Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Salvation is not by works, right? But instead, they they didn't. They said man has to do earn his man has to earn his way into heaven. They flat out say that, right? And um, the, this is the point where Protest, a lot of Protestants say, look, this is where the Roman Catholic Church they the phrase they often use is they anathematized, right? They anathematized the gospel. They said away with it, right? We don't want the pure gospel, so it's a, it's a it's a sad moment really in some ways the council of trent all right um so then uh 1540 uh Melanchthon's treatise on power and primacy on the pope is published um which is exactly what it sounds like it's a treatise on who the pope is and what the pope does and the basic argument that Melanchthon makes in um the primacy and pow- power of the primacy of the pope is that when it comes to the Bible, right? And remember this is this is the whole point of everything that we've talked about for the last couple of weeks, right, over and over and over again, is scripture alone, right? This is this is why Martin Chemnitz cares about the Council of Trent, right? This is uh, why Philip Melanchthon writes the Treatise on Power and Primacy of the Pope. This is why Luther nailed the 95 theses of the door. This is why anything happens and the Reformation is because of Scripture alone. Um, what he makes the argument from Scripture in the treatise of Power of Supremacy of the Pope is basically two things of, and, and really one main thing and that is that Christ institutes pastors. And there's only one kind of pastor, according to the New Testament. There's just pastors, right? Christ does not institute bishops or uh, cardinals or popes or uh, deacons or uh, church trustees. Christ doesn't institute any of these things. He institutes pastors, right? Now, let me clarify. In the Bible, there are a couple different terms for the same thing, right? So um, I was just talking to a, there's a college student in catechesis right now from uh, Old Miss, and I'm, I was, we were just doing catechism this morning, and uh, he was asking about the t- different titles for Pastors and where they come from in the Bible and such. So there's there's a couple different um, words for pastors in the Bible. Sometimes you'll see translations that say overseers, right? Which is kind of funny because that's probably the most popular term in the in the New Testament that that Paul uses at least uh, to talk about pastors. And yet I don't know any church body that calls their pastor overseer. <laughs> Overseer Myers, <laughs> it just sounds weird. <laughs> I mean, no one says it, but that's that's the word uh, I'll use uses. But that's actually a translation of the Greek word "episkopos," uh, um, which uh, is the, also translated um, more directly as bishop, right? And I, I believe that's Greek, and then it goes into Latin as bishop, and then you get that. So, but but. Melanchthon makes the argument that bishops are just pastors, right? Um, they're just overseers. And then you, you also get the word diakona, which uh, – or diakonos, which obviously we get – oh, this is wrong. The there. Um, we basically get the word uh, diakonia or diakonos, which is a deacon, and that just means someone who serves. Um, that's all that that literally means. Um and then we get the the word pastor is a, a Latin word that gets applied later on as shepherd, um, right? That's what that word means. And you also have some other related words like um, uh, priest, right? Um, which it which is biblical, but it's the Old Testament word, right? For, for pastor, it's the Old Testament office. Um, there's a couple others. Elder uh, is another term. Let's see, where does elder come from? Um, I'm trying to think of the what 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 it's translating. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, I'll have to double check that up. Um, Reverend is a more m- uh, modern English word. Uh, reverend is an academic title. Um, basically, reverend is just someone who has a degree in in theology. Yeah. So. Um, but anyway, you get all these different words, right? But Melanchthon's argument in the power and primacy of the pope is that for the most part, all these are one office, right? Um, the The New Testament does make some distinction between there are some guys that are Ordained and they serve as full-time ministers of the gospel. And there are some guys who are ordained who do it more maybe bivocationally, who kind of help um, more administrate and take care of of things in the church. But at the end of the day, he has not instituted a church governance structure that says you have to have a pope and you have to have bishops and then you have priests um, and then you have deacons or something like that. Christ never instituted any of that. Now, Melanchthon does say, and this is kind of the second point, is that good order is good, right? And so even in the you know, LCMS today, for instance, we have pastors, the kind of general pastors of, of Senate, and then we have the district presidents um, who are kind of the pastor of the pastors in a region. And then we even have a synodical president that's kind of supposed to be the pastor of the district presidents is the idea, right? He says good order is fine. Like, it's okay. It's a, and, you know, for a while there in the early church, whenever people first started using the word pope for the guy that was the pastor at Rome, like, he says, that's fine if all it is is just the regional pastor, right, or the pastor of the pastors in that area. And you kind of want to have some sort of hierarchy just for organizational purposes. He says, that's all fine. Um, but – when you start saying that, and and this is one of the things that's really hammered on in the council, of Trent. When you start saying that the Pope is infallible, right? Um, that's when you run into problems, right? The the Pope is not infallible. The Pope is just another man, and he's just another pastor. And and um, this is also where we uh, here maybe this is worth talking about. Um, where the Lutheran Confessions say that uh, the Pope is in fact the Antichrist. right? Um, and and why would they say that? Because right? that seems like a very drastic thing to say. Well, first of all, I, I just want you to remember that um, when we talk about the Antichrist, well, when we talk about the Pope, we're talking about a pastor, and remember what... Um, the Bible says when it talks about how pastors are going to be judged, that they're going to be judged harsher, right? Because if, if a pastor leads people astray, um, then he is doing something uh, even more hard or more terrible than if one person you know happens to believe wrongly right because if, if say one guy is a bad is a pastor who who teaches wrongly um what what he's doing is leading potentially you know 20 30 40 50 100 people whatever it may be astray into false belief right whereas if one of those people happens to believe wrongly you know that's not good but if a guy is convincing a lot of people to believe wrongly that's really not good Right. So um, teachers are judged more strictly for their faithfulness. And uh, that's that's just simply the way it is. That's what God's word teaches. OK. Um, the other thing I want to say about the Antichrist is, OK, what, where does this word come from in Scripture and how are how, how is Melanchthon using it? How are the confessors using it? Um, I just got to find the verse here. It's in First John, two. Yeah. Um, So this is a term John uses, and I'll just keep talking while I find it here. Um, the the term antichrist uh, biblically is not just one person or one thing, right? So I think that's the mistake that um, a lot of people make uh, is that they try and identify, uh, you know, kind of using Revelation and 1 John. Uh, like one particular antichrist that is the antichrist, that is to say, you know, kind of this mysterious figure that is um, the opposite of of Christ or the opposite of God or something like this, or like the most manifestation of evil possible, right? Um, And that's not how the confessors are using it, right? Um, They're not saying that the particular pope at the time, Pope Paul... The third or uh, that the um, that every single pope is like the worst person that's ever lived. They're saying that his spirit, the spirit of the papacy, to say that there's this office that's above every other pastor and every soul in the Christian church that is infallible and that this is what the Roman Catholics teach and that can speak on behalf of God outside of the scriptures that that is the spirit of antichrist okay so this is 1 john 2 18 little children it is the last hour and as you have heard that the antichrist is coming even now many antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour okay and so remember way back to eschatology we're living in the end times we're waiting for jesus to come back right and the word Antichrist is literally what it sounds like. It's someone who is anti-Jesus, right? That is anti-gospel. Um, so the Antichrist is coming, capital A Antichrist is coming, right? And I think what John is talking about here is when you read Revelation and there's this kind of final battle between the devil and Christ um, at the end of the world where he's he's – I mean, he's been bound, but then he's permanently bound, right? No longer prince of this world. Um, Permanently bound in hell. I think that's what John's saying here that, you know, Satan is coming um, for this final battle, if you will. But even now, many antichrists have come, right? Many little devils, if you will, have come, um, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Right, and this is also part of why they make this argument: is they went out from us, but they were not of us. Is that it's these false teachers coming out of the church, right? And especially the Pope is a good example of this. Okay, so um, anyway, that's um, not to go too far into that, but uh, yeah, the the Lutherans let let's just put it this way: the Lutherans take it very seriously this problem of the in- infallibility of the Pope, right, and that. Supposedly, he's the vicar of Christ and can speak on behalf of God ex cathedra outside of the um, outside of the scriptures. It's it's such a massive problem, and I would also say we've been proven right um, in that the popes continue to contradict both themselves and scriptures, right uh, over and over again throughout history. So um, it's just not a good idea. Like we we've known this. It's not a good idea to have dictators. It's not a good idea to just put one guy in charge without any checks or balances. It's just not a good idea ever, right? So um, anyway, that's power and primacy of the pope. All right. I, I think I gassed off enough on that. Uh, we we'll keep going here. Okay, so uh, 1546, soon after Martin Luther died, Pope Paul III and Charles – Emperor Charles V made an agreement to stop the Protestant Reformation and force – uh, Lutherans. Oh, I was already talking about this earlier. Look at that. Mm-hmm. To become part of the Catholic Church again, the small caldic war broke out. By the middle of 1547, uh, the emperor had defeated all the Lutheran princes. Philip Melanchthon decided to compromise some of his beliefs in effort to get along with the pope and the emperor. Uh, Lutherans became split between those compromising like a Melanchthon and those who held tightly to what they believed. So this is the sad thing is Melanchthon writes these great documents and confesses these things and then he kind of uh, crumbles under pressure. Right. And I think I mentioned last week about the, um, the variata or the, when he rewrites the Augsburg confession and gets weaker on the Lord's supper, um, which is kind of a sad thing. So that's why we hold to the unaltered Augsburg confession. Anyway, random fact. All right. 1552, the elector of Saxony drove the emperor and his troops out of Saxony. Two treaties in 1552 and 1555 gave religious freedom back to the princes. Um, I got the name of those on the tip of my tongue, and now I can't think of them. Uh, anyway, I'll think of it later. Um, all right, so uh, – but yeah, they, they ultimately ended up with religious freedom where they uh, basically – I think I already described this, but um, eventually what what came to be is basically that whatever whoever the local prince was, if he was Lutheran or Reformed or Roman Catholic, that's what that area – was for the most part right that's what churches were there or allowed to be there so you were lucky if you had a lutheran prince but if you didn't then you know you didn't so um the church in 1560 the church of scotland broke away from the roman catholic church which is ultimately the origin of presbyterians um one of the main kind of places of the reform there the Council of Trent met for the last time after making many decisions about official beliefs and practices of the Roman Empire. That's 1563, we already mentioned that. 1576, okay, the epitome of the Formula of Concord was completed at the Torgau Conference, six Lutheran theologians, including Chemnitz. I keep prophesying what they're gonna say in the book. It's I you know, I keep talking about it before we get there. And I <laughs> forget, um, I don't know what order they're gonna go in. Anyway, yes, the Formula of Concord. Um, so the Formula of Concord is this document that is written to deal with all the controversies that Lutherans are talking about or arguing about after Luther dies, right? So he dies in 1546. As you can see from the last couple of things in the timeline, um, arguments continue to happen. And even among Lutherans, our arguments continue to happen. Imagine that, Lutherans arguing about this. <laughs> unbelievable. Um, to deal with this, the Lutherans write, the couple, six, six major theologians, including Chemnitz, um, get together, and they write this document called The Formula of Concord, which I think it's got like 13 or so sections in it that deal with all the different controversies that, that are taking place right? and say, like, this is what our position is on that. Um okay so they they create this document uh that they want to end theological disagreements um and then 1577 the solid declaration of the formula of concord is completed um so the yeah there's two parts to the formula of concord there's the epitome which is like a summary and then there's the solid declaration which is much bigger longer um, and then in 1580, finally, the Book of Concord, which is our Lutheran Confessions, this is what um, well, I'll say in just a minute, is published exactly 50 years after the Augsburg Confession was presented at the Diet of Augsburg. Over 8,000 signed to show it is what they agreed with everything in it. So um, the Lutheran Confessions, just to go over this one more time, is the, the often – so sometimes called the Lutheran Confessions – Uh, sometimes called the Book of Concord is the collection of documents that is published not just during the Reformation. Does anyone know what documents long before the Reformation are in the Book of Concord? The creeds. Yeah, so the Apostles Nicene and Athanasian Creed are published in the Book of Concord um, as part of the Lutheran Confession. Um, so, which it is, the purpose of that is to show we're not believing anything new, right? We're not confessing anything new, right? And anyway, this book published in 1580, um, it becomes the standard for what it is that, if you're going to call yourself a Lutheran church, what it is you're supposed to believe, right? Right? Now, that plays out practically um, in this way, that um, the basically to have a congregation, what do you have? You have the pastor, or pastors, and you got the lay people, right? And then you kind of have, if you want to think of it this way, kind of the the congregation as constituted, right? So um, over time, right, the pastor is going to change. Over time, the lay people are going to change. We don't have any founding members left as members here at Beautiful Savior. So literally the this congregation, it's still Beautiful Savior, right? But i'm not john schmidt and no one here is a founding member so none of the people right the pastor or the lay people aren't the same we're not in the same building that we were when we started right and so how is this still beautiful savior well it's because when john schmidt planted the congregation and the people got together there they wrote a constitution and said this is beautiful savior lutheran church And then they bought a building, and they sold the building, and they bought another people, and people came, and people left, and pastors came, and pastors left. All the while, it's still the congregation is constituted, beautiful Savior Lutheran Church, right? Um, So, okay, what am I saying? (laughs) How does this relate to the Book of Concord? Well, um, the pastor of a Lutheran Church is supposed to subscribe to the entire thing, right? The entire Book of Concord. Um, when when I was ordained, a lot of you were here. Uh, that the what what I had to say is that I they the you know Dr. Pavlo listed all the documents in the Book of Concord and said, "Does this? Do you believe these documents are a true confession and interpretation of the Word of God?" And I said, "Yes, I do." Right. Um, obviously, we don't expect lay people to read the entire Book of Concord, right? Um, I can go get. A copy off my desk, but you know, it's about that thick. It's, it takes a while to read. you know, I had to read it during seminary, but um we don't expect lay people to read all of that. So lay people are only really required to be members to know the small catechism, right? Which is only about thirty pages, so a lot <laughs> a lot more doable. Actually like 20, 28 or so like that. So um that's what we require lay people to know to be members, and that's what I teach from, right? I teach from the small catechism when I teach new members classes. Um, that's in the Book of Concord, but it's a much more concise, like Ten Commandments, Creed, Lord's Prayer, Baptism, Confession, Absolution, Lord's Supper, Christian Questions and Their Answers, Table of Duties, Daily Prayers, right? Very. This is the summary of the Christian faith. Uh, the congregation has constituted. Um, we already talked about this. The Unaltered Augsburg Confession is kind of the confession of. The church right this is the idea is that this was the kind of first major document first major confession that the lutherans kind of agreed upon okay here's the 28 major principles that we believe right so it's a little bit more than the small catechism but a lot less than the entire book of concord right and in your church constitution you can say like you know we're a church of the augsburg confession right Uh, Actually, in our Constitution, it's even better if you say we're a church of the entire Book of Concord, but we can at least say, okay, a a good Lutheran church is going to say we're a church of the Augsburg Confession, right? Uh, This is how congregations often identified throughout Lutheran history. Okay, so um, anyway, that's how the Book of Concord still functions today is it is the thing that kind of keeps us who we are, right? Kind of keeps us in line, right? Right. just like I was saying about a congregation, right, like over history, theologians die, the people of a church die, new people are raised, new people are brought in, new people are born, right? What keeps you the same, right? And a congregation, in some sense, it's kind of the constitution and bylaws, but as a church body, right, it's it's our confessions, right? It's what we believe, right? Um, and... Uh, there, are, By the way, there are lots of other churches that have confessions, right? So um, Roman Catholics have the, the Catholic Catechism, even though they kind of ignore it if the Pope says otherwise, right? Which is its own problem. Um, Presbyterians have the Westminster Confessions, right? Uh, um, there's lots of other church bodies that have, have their own kind of books or confessions, right? Um, and it, it's a good... It is a good thing, right? And it's like, you, you know, you get these churches that say, well, cr- uh, deeds, not creeds. Well, first of all, that is a creed in itself, right? If you say deeds, not creeds, that's a, that's a confession of faith, right? That's a, you're, you're saying a, a, a set of words to try and describe what it is you believe, mm-hmm. right? And so that's what we're doing when we get together our confessions is we say, this is a, these are the sets of words that say what it is we believe. This is how the faith is passed down. Um, and, it, and it keeps us in line, right? Um, the way I, I've always kind of described this is, okay, scripture alone, right? So not it's not confessions alone, it's scripture alone, right? And the, the Lutheran confessions are always pointing back to the scripture, right? And saying this is what we believe, right? Um, with scripture... Scripture is deep and wide, right? Scripture is... uh, It's... It's... uh, Deep and wide, and you can never mind the depths of it, right? You can always get more and more out of Scripture. Well, you can always get more out of Scripture, but there are definitely things you can say that go against Scripture, right? And this is what happens over and over again throughout history, is that, you know, a pope or whoever says something that goes against Scripture. Mm -hmm. And... Then Christians have to come in and say, no, 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 wait, this is this is the outline of what Scripture says, and you can't you can't go outside of that, right? So I always describe it like a children's coloring page. What's the the only instruction you give the kids? Don't color outside the lines, right? Now when you color inside the lines, right, you can color, right? This is I, I did not plan this, but you can color at however you want, right? You know, purple, blue, pink, greens, whatever, how, whatever parts, whatever colors, you can explore as much as you want within the depths and the and the height and the, the breadth of Scripture. But if you go outside the lines, someone's got to come along and say, no, nope, that's that's not what, that's outside the bounds of what Scripture says, right? And that's all that the confessions are, is it's the lines on the page, right? It's kind of saying, look, um, when we fit Scripture to- together the way that it wants to fit together take the kind of clear, let scripture interpret scriptural, plain meanings, we get these lines that guide us, right? And and, the, and we, we try not to color outside of those, right? But inside we can we can really explore. So, all right. Um, all right, so that's uh, the, the Book of Concord is, is finally published in 1580. Um, and that kind of, in one sense, marks the end of the Lutheran Reformation. Um, because this is when kind of what lutherans there's later lutheran history right which we're going to talk about but when it comes to the era of the reformation kind of basically the more or less the 16th century right if you think about 1517 is the 95 theses 1580 is the book of concord that's you got 20 years on either end but for the most part the majority of the of the 16th century is the era of the reformation um that's the timeline of what happens, um, and this is kind of when it after after the Book of Concord is published. Then you're talking about later Lutheran history. But any questions
1: on any of that so far? Yes, yeah, Steve. Yeah, when you were talking about First John 2:18, the Antichrist. Yeah, I was. thinking, yeah. Does the Catholic Church believe that when Christ died, it's the end times, at Rome, and rose? The end times, and then. Until now, I mean, are they all millennials
0: or what are they? Yeah, uh, they are all-millennial for the most part, yep. Yeah. So they, they believe we're in the end times.
1: Okay. And also, <clears throat> you mentioned the— uh,
0: there, there might be some historic pre-mills in there, but okay. but for the most part, I think I think they're all-millennial.
1: Yeah, and when you mentioned the, the peasants during the uh, Small Call article, 20, yep. and— uh, I, when I was in England one time, I looked up Tyler, and there was a famous guy named Wat Tyler, and he was the head of the peasants, and he got his head locked off by the king uh, or the pre- the mayor of London. Ah. So I come from a long line of peasants. There you go. <laughs>
0: Luckily, he procreated before he got
1: his head chopped
0: <laughs> off. <laughs> Otherwise, he might not be here.
1: England,
0: and that's where my relatives are. Nice. Yeah, Tyler is a good English name. Um. There you go. Yeah. Uh. It's actually. Um. Yeah, we we got some time. Uh, the the Peasants' Revolt is very interesting. Um, Luther was actually, he was very harsh with the peasants. He did not want them revolting like that. And you can understand why he didn't want the all the hard work basically to be undone, you know, yeah, by
1: breaking windows, by a bad
0: image, yeah. But uh, he writes to the German. He basically writes to the to the yeah. government and um, says you need to strike this revolt down. Mm-hmm. And he says some pretty harsh things about the peasants, like basically lop off their heads like, until they stop. Um, and it's been a big debate among Lutherans ever since then as whether or not Luther was right in that, if he should have gone as far, said some of the things he said and kind of how, how far he thought it should be put down. Um, I If if anyone's really interested in that debate, I wrote a paper on that in seminary, and I said that he went too far, so I don't know. Um, I got something
1: in my eye. Uh, but, um, yeah, I was thinking back to the more modern Lutheran, Lutheran movie, and it showed them the peasants breaking in the windows mm-hmm. of churches and tearing down their icons. And yeah, stuff.
0: and, and it, it, we, we've probably already said it, but it's an important point again is that um, this – I always describe it this way, that – the Lutherans that never wanted to, the evangelical Lutherans, like the Lutheran and his kind of crowd, they never wanted to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? So you have the, um, you have the Roman Catholic Church, right? And you got all of this kind of fluff around the Roman Catholic Church that they've included in their (coughs) theology and their practice over the last, you know, however many hundred years. But somewhere under there, right, you got the true gospel and the scriptures that have been preserved and you also have, you know, along with that, you got Good traditions You can't I know you can't read that um, you, That says gospel and tradition You got good traditions That have been preserved Throughout history that teach the faith Right And when Luther comes along Right And, and not just Luther But the other evangelicals as well Their whole point is Get rid of all the fluff Right Right but instead of saying let's throw this whole thing out, right, they say, let's get this, right? Let's get the the baby out of the bathwater and 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 dry the baby off and 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 and, and dress the baby and, and make the baby let again, right? Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um and the what the radical reformers did when they came along, which included – this is where the Peasants' revolt comes from. As they said, get rid of it all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. we'll start over, right? Just throw the whole dang dumb thing. Out. <laughs> and um, that's why they, they were smashing windows is because stained glass – this was an image of the Roman Catholic Church, right? Just get rid of it, right? Uh, stained glass is idolatry, they would say um and that that kind of attitude by the way just the technical term is called iconoclasm which is to say the uh the clasm or the the destruction of of icons right of images right they were like get get rid of the images get rid of it all that's all roman catholic just let's just start over just me and my bible
1: yeah yeah they were taking it so serious that they Change the numbering of the Ten Commandments. You know, like they're, um, you know, have no idols is, is one of their, their commandments. The
0: right. Yeah. Yeah. So the the um the Protestants picked up the Eastern way of numbering the Roman the not the the Eastern way of numbering the Ten Commandments instead of so that the Western way forever was what we still say: you shall have no other gods; you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And then within you shall have no other gods as you shall not make unto thee any graven image, which means literally like don't make a image of a false god and don't worship an image of a false god, right? Um, like literally don't have literal idols, right? Um, and they, they – that was so important to them that they thought – Look, all this stained glass and stuff, these are graven images because they're Roman Catholic. And so um, they took the Eastern way of numbering the Ten Commandments, which goes, you shall have no other gods, you shall not make unto thee any graven image. That's included as its own commandment instead of a subset of the first commandment. Mm -hmm. And then they combined what our ninth and tenth is, which is the two about coveting, which is fine. Like, I'm not that mad about it because they're – the problem when you – Trying number the Ten Commandments is that there's eleven, but God says there's ten, and so you got to pick which which two you're gonna combine. Um, but that's that's just a that's more of an exegetical problem. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's that is what they did. They did they picked up the Eastern way of numbering them. So most Protestants today still have the Eastern way of numbering the Ten Commandments. All right, um, we got five minutes here. So uh, we'll just mention uh, some of these things at the beginning of chapter 27, which is about the world of the Reformation. As I mentioned earlier, so many things are happening in world history at this point. So um, the book started out there talking about not only was the world growing larger in its kind of academic pursuits and especially in returning to sources, right, uh, which is where we go back to Scripture alone, but – In some sense, literally getting bigger too. In so 1492, right, 25 years before the 95 Theses, is when uh, Columbus, which was Monday, right, Uh, Columbus Day, Uh made his famous voyage that led to the discovery of the New World. uh, Reforming the intellectual thought of the time, Um, now people were, the people of Europe were wrestling with the reality that the world had two more continents that no one, anyone had imagined. Um, So you got that going on, right, Um, which changes the way that people are thinking. And uh, then you have uh, this section here, different beliefs, where – so I'll just read this. Europeans were also well aware that those groups – of those groups that held different beliefs for most of the medieval period, Muslims controlled much of the area that is now Spain and Portugal – In fact, it was in 1492, the same year of Columbus's famous voyage, that the last of the Muslim states in Spain were defeated. This did not mean an end to European dealings with Muslims, just a shift of directions, uh, since at that time there was a great invasion of Europe from the southeast by the Ottoman Turks, right? which is – we've already kind of mentioned that, that Luther and and the um, Emperor Charles and all these people were kind of trying to deal with that at the same time that the Reformation was happening. Um, They even got as far as laying siege on Vienna in 1529, the year before the Diet of Augsburg. Okay, Uh, so the point I want to make about that is that it can seem at times like, especially in our country right now, because America has gotten less Christian over the last 70 years, um, the peak of church attendance in in America was in the 1950s, um, and it's it's gotten worse every year since then. It can seem like Christianity is waning, right? Like it's getting worse, um, and less and less people are believing. And there's a sense in which in certain areas, I mean, it's not even a sense. There's a reality in which certain in certain areas that is true, right? However, if you look at Christianity from the year 33 AD until now, on a global scale, it's basically only grown, which is good, right? <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. that's a hopeful thing. Um, and I would also argue that if you take the time – to look at where Christianity has come, and then when it's left, if it has left or if it's leaving, and where it goes, and what happens when it goes somewhere, that Christianity is by and large a good for the world, right? Mm-hmm. That it, this is where we get hospitals. This is how first, third world countries become first world countries. It is often a case of the gospel. It changes people's hearts. It changes people's minds. It changes the way that people think and live and, and love their neighbors. And, um, I mean, Jesus commands in Acts 1, right? You will be my witnesses. You will share the gospel starting in Judea, Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that mission does go forth, right? Um, and and I think we can have hope. I mean, in one sense, we recognize Maybe things are going to get really bad, and Jesus is going to come back again soon, and that's that's great, right? Come soon, Lord Jesus. But um, we can also have hope that the gospel has come and gone in places before, right? And we can go forward and take that gospel into the world, and it can and there can be revival and reformation, right? Like, and and this just to kind of sum up, this gets us back to the whole point of the Reformation, right? In the Holy Roman Empire, Christianity was on its way out. Right? It was being replaced by this corruption of the medieval Roman Catholic Church. And Luther brought it back, right? And and the other reformers, right? Not just Luther. Um and that was a good good for that that time, right? And and for those people. Um and then and then from there it goes, it continues to go. Scotland, England, right? America. So um and and right now it's there's places all over the world that Christianity is still growing and thriving. So um, anyway, that's that's my spiel of hope for the end of the day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Usually when Christianity is oppressed or trying to stamp out, then it grows in underground churches like the church in Russia or the USSR and China. Right. They, you know, they have these underground home churches, and uh, the church becomes more faithful and All Right. So I hope, I hope we don't get that first group that might take that for the church to revive. Right. All
0: right. Any other questions, comments, concerns, quandaries? All right. You got something. All right. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this day. We pray that you would always keep us focused on Scripture alone, for that is our source of life and salvation, and we pray that you would continue to be with your church um, as it is persecuted at times, but also as the gospel goes forth. Uh, Help us to be bold in our proclamation of the gospel, that uh, we might show the world uh, who their Savior is in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray this to the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one
1: God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.